Hey y'all, it's Luke. COVID has been devastating in ways that are probably too numerous to count. We all know that. It's exposed holes in almost every inch of our social fabric, and it's been such a deluge of bad news for so long, with the immediacy of death and illness and bad health policy taking up most of every news cycle. There are lots of other second-order effects that haven't been talked about nearly enough. Housing is one of those things that needs more consideration, and it needs our attention right now. Washington State has an eviction moratorium in place, but that moratorium will not last forever. And the moment it lifts, housing advocates fear an absolute tsunami. That's the word they use, a eviction tsunami, a tsunami of houselessness. As renters who have struggled to maintain employment during the economic lockdown and therefore have struggled to pay their rent, suddenly face eviction. Like I hinted, housing hasn't really taken stage to this point, but it absolutely needs to have a turn at the front of all of our brains right now. If we wait until the eviction moratorium is revoked to start talking about this stuff, it's way too late. Honestly, even if we want balls to the wall starting right this second, a lot of people are still going to end up out on the street. So we are not in create a perfect housing scenario land. We're actually in harm reduction land already. And let me tell you, there is not a lot of existing harm reduction in the rental market as it exists today. So it's going to take a push from everybody else. The landlords aren't doing it themselves. Here's a little clip. And, and in fact, I did get a hold of some of the tenants that moved, and that's exactly what happened. They had to separate their family. A daughter went to, with one relative and, until you could get settled. And, and, of course, people left their belongings. And so the owner of the building, as he removed everybody, hired from the city dumpsters. Jeez. He spent more money on the dumpsters than uh. he spent to, to help these tenants move out of their house. Why couldn't they have given them adequate time to move, yeah. a little bit of help in their relocation? Then they wouldn't have had to even probably hire the dumpsters to put all of their stuff. And I saw the stuff that was going in dumpsters. It was photographs. It was memories. It was toys. It was belongings that people had to literally abandon behind them. But the owner of the building couldn't pay for that cost, but paid for the cost of dumpsters yeah. and then complained about it. You know, as as if to say, see these tenants, they just leave this mess behind. <laughs> well, what are they expected to do when you give them 20 days notice? So, yeah, not much harm reduction in the current system. Spokane has become a popular place to move, and those transplants are squeezing a housing market where rental vacancies are already essentially zero. We've been talking about the housing crisis since, I think, 2016 or 2017. The Washington State Department of Licensing has said they've been issuing an average of 1,000 new Washington licenses in Spokane County for over 25 months. So what that means is that there are an average of 1,000 driving age adults moving to Spokane from out of state every month, which obviously does not include people who are moving from places like Seattle or Vancouver and who already have a Washington State driver's license. So it's an incomplete statistic <laughs> and it's uh the real number is actually probably a lot higher could be as much as double or more who knows also might be less but still it's a lot i'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that we have not been building even close to that many new units of housing every month so the housing demand that was already at a fever pitch that has already pumped up the home values for everyone lucky enough to own a home in this town is putting tremendous pressure on folks especially lower income residents who rent this is a topic we broached a couple months ago with Ben Stuckert, who argued for a housing levy. That housing levy has since passed, and that's a good thing, but it was only ever a partial solution, as he talked about. 
So joining me this week to discuss what comprehensive holistic housing reform might look like is Terry Anderson, Spokane Director and Policy Lead at the Tenants Union of Washington State. Terry helped open the Spokane office in 2013, and for eight years she's been a tireless advocate for tenants' rights. But tenant organizing was not her first rodeo. Anderson has been helping underserved and marginalized communities for most of her adult life, including organizing people to push for a city ordinance to mandate independent investigations of police misconduct, an ordinance that eventually passed the city council unanimously. Terry's also organized to address the effects of years of uranium mining on the Spokane Indian Reservation and has worked for racial equity in higher education. She considers herself a first-generation American, a fourth-generation Washingtonian, a person of color living in Spokane, and also a tenant. And I think that last part is really key. When you talk to her, she says, I am a tenant. And I think that's really key. There's a stigma around renting that like it's a thing you do when you're young or it's a thing you do if you're like poor and you can't do the obvious other thing, the more desirable thing, which is owning a home. But of course, we know what happened when we tried to get everybody into a housing mortgage. Predatory lenders swooped in and oopsie daisy, all of a sudden you have a housing bubble that creates one of the greatest economic catastrophes of all time, 2009. So we need to get comfortable and destigmatize the idea of renting because for a large number of people, they're never going to be able to buy. And actually, you know what? They might not want to buy. Terry doesn't want to buy. She talks about it later in the thing. So why are we stigmatizing that? A robust housing policy in a modern city should include incentives for homeowning, protections for homeowning, but also incentives for renting and protections for renting. People should feel free to live however they want to live in a society built on freedom and making affordable housing available to people regardless of how much money they make at their job or if they're on disability, whether they make any money at all is key to the just functioning of society that a lot of us think about and talk about. Whew, don't get me started, getting heated. Build a lot more homes. What was I talking about again? Oh yeah, she is a tenant herself and is passionate that people should be able to be tenants. If you don't wanna own a house, you don't have to. You should still be able to find housing in a fair and just society. And her advocacy is fierce, as you'll hear in a second. But I, I asked my buddy Paul Dillon, who's a longtime Spokane activist as well, currently works for Planned Parenthood. Paul's a guy I go to whenever he seems to know what's going on in the activist community, whether he's directly involved in it or not. And so I was like, hey, what do you think about Terry Anderson? This is kind of a thing I do. I'm like, I don't know everybody in this town. Would this person be good to talk about this subject? And, and Paul shot back saying, quote, Terry is a fearless advocate for tenants in Spokane. If you spent 10 minutes with her, you know that there's nobody who does it better, which is a pretty ringing endorsement. And then, and I love this so much, when I asked him if I could use that quote directly, he said, sure, here's another one. Quote, if you haven't been yelled at by Terry, then you haven't worked on housing. And that's exactly the sort of person we want to hear from here at Range. Someone who isn't afraid to uh, call people on their bullshit. Sorry, mom. We need more of that in this town, especially when it comes to uh, marginalized communities. And I'm so, so thankful she took the time. This is kind of a long interview, so we're going to cut it into two parts, as is our custom occasionally with really, really important topics like this. Even then, the conversation is going to be a little bit long in the next couple weeks. So I want to get right into it. Terry Anderson, Spokane Director and Policy Lead at the Tenants Union of Washington State, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 26, build a lot more homes. 
All right, y'all, this week I am with Terry Anderson. She is the Spokane director and policy lead for the Tenants Union of Washington State. Terry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe we could just start by talking about the work the Tenants Union does and why it's so important to you personally. Well, the Tenants Union has been around since 1977, so we celebrated our 40th anniversary about three years ago. Oh, wow. And it actually started in Seattle, and and it's, you know, I used to always say kind of jokingly that Spokane was like Seattle in the, the 70s. Um, <laughs> A lot of people say that. And yeah. it's kind of like maybe in the 80s now, but it actually kind of works when I talk about the history of the Tenants Union. And um, in 1977 is about when Seattle downtown uh, real estate started looking real attractive for development, but yet there was a lot of um, affordable, naturally occurring affordable, low-income housing in the form of single-room occupancy housing. And in order to get those, those buildings free, they came up with this great idea to outlaw single room only occupancy in downtown oh. Seattle uh, and they used the argument that it attracts crime, Vice. there's drug activity, yeah. that it is an economic downturn and the city council listened to everybody but the tenants. Hmm. So they, they actually passed the ordinance and then the tenants realized they were all going to lose their housing and came forward and that's when the tenants union was formed and they repealed that ordinance because they realized that single room only occupancy is an affordable housing option that was working in downtown Seattle and businesses in those areas actually valued the tenants that lived in those buildings because that was their customer base. Right, right. And so by changing the nature of the the housing, it was going to change the nature of Seattle. Well, we now have seen what's happened to Seattle right. since then, but um, that's really what, ha- what started the tenants union, and that is that if there are going to be policies impacting tenants, then tenants have to have a voice. Oh, voice right. um, and so creatively, I think the tenants union realized that not only is there a need for policy impact and voice of the tenants, but there's also a need for service providing to let tenants know what their rights are. Yeah. We have a Residential Landlord Tenant Act in the state of Washington that's basically not enforced. It's, mm-hmm. it's enforced only by individuals. And if tenants don't know their rights, then they can't enforce those provisions of that law. So we started doing uh, tenant hotlines and tenant clinics. And as tenants come and tell their stories, and you start to see a common thread. If it's because conditions aren't being maintained in the building, well, then maybe it's time to look at a building maintenance code. Maybe it's time to look at a rental registry. Maybe it's time to look at rental inspections. So Tenants Union has really been at the forefront of actually on the ground looking at how policies work, how wow. they impact people, and how they how tenants can make changes. We started in Spokane in 2013. I started here in 2013, and I was actually hired by the Tenants Union on a HUD contract, and it was a mm. housing preservation contract for Section 8 project-based housing, which mm. we have thousands of tenants that live in those buildings in Spokane. Yeah. Um, that program actually ended in the 1980s, and as those mortgages expire, those buildings become at risk for losing their affordability because the owners of those buildings could convert to market rate and lose the affordability. And we were really worried about some buildings in Spokane. So we opened up an office here, and I worked on several buildings, um, that one that actually did convert in Cheney, and others we were able to preserve through organizing tenants. But 
I mean, like all of a sudden, our phones were just ringing off the hook, and two one one was telling us that uh, word has it there's a tenants union in Spokane, <laughs> and can you help these tenants? And so, just by that kind of natural attraction, we just developed a need to be here permanently. And so, the tenants union uh, made a decision to open a permanent office in Spokane. It's interesting. I think 2013 is a little bit before when the housing crisis started becoming a news item, you know. Exactly. So what so you're saying that it's this HUD housing or like what what used to be sort of federally regulated low income housing mm-hmm. that is in danger of converting into market rate housing. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like the canary in the coal mine, maybe that that showed that there was maybe trouble on the horizon, or was it just sort of a? a yeah, lucky I coincidence? think that's always an indicator. If yeah. you're seeing um, subsidized buildings going to market rate, then um, there's a reason for that. So yeah. yes, and you're right. the The timing was almost exactly when the um, vacancy rate went from about three percent to one percent, uh. and now it's hovering around zero percent, which is even even a little misleading because if you really looked at rental housing by affordability, um, there really is zero yeah. vacancy for affordable housing. Any vacancies that we have are really on the high end housing. Totally. And just sort of setting the landscape for folks that might not be super informed about this stuff. And we chatted a little bit about the dynamics of this with, with Ben Stuckert a couple episodes ago, but you mentioned naturally occurring affordable housing when you were talking about Seattle. It strikes me that there was plenty of naturally occurring affordable housing when I started thinking about renting apartments mm-hmm. in the mid-2000s all the way up through. I, I eventually was able to buy a house in, in 2010, but I don't know that those exist anymore. So can you talk about the market dynamics that allow for a quote-unquote, you know, what, what people call naturally occurring affordable housing and then how market forces kind of basically destroy that. Well, we're going through that right now. I mean, we've been going through it in Spokane and I'm not sure that COVID has really changed that in uh, terms of, I mean, despite market, the yeah, because, stuff, uh, yeah. you know, uh, interest rates are about as low as they can get. Um, yeah. Landlords are really real estate investors. Yeah. And as the price, and then, as, you know, everybody knows that our housing market is one of the hottest in the country. Yeah. So, as the prices go up and these investors have held on to this property that the renters have been paying rent for, then when they sell those properties, the rent goes up. I mean, that's just naturally what's been happening. We see um, entire buildings getting served 20-day no-cause notices, especially on the lower South Hill, where there's a lot of older buildings that have converted into, you know, 8, 10, 12-unit buildings. An investor buys that building that has been forever rented to affordable tenants yeah. who can afford the rent. Maybe they're older, retired, and as soon as those buildings are purchased, and you, we, we, you know, we joke, you know, you just need to lay a linoleum and a new carpet and put in a <laughs> microwave, and you can double the rent. Yeah. And that's exactly what's been happening. So we've been seeing that for a long time in Spokane, and. I mean, and then you hear about people experiencing homelessness in Spokane and this, you know, it just seems like, well, look at the calendar, folks. This is exactly the same time our housing started becoming so unattainable. 
so in the case of all those sort of like old mansions on the lower South Hill that were turned into eight or 10 unit um, apartments, a new landlord is coming in and buying that thing at, at, a, at a higher market rate than the person bought it for probably in the 80s or 90s or early 2000s and just and immediately without changing anything can double rent. Mm-hmm. Or what we're also seeing happening is because there is such a hot housing market at the top end of the market, those you know 10 unit apartment buildings are getting turned back into single family homes for wealthy people and you're just losing eight units of, of housing stock as well, right? So there's like a double, it's doing both ends of the market, right? I would say that probably the conditions of those housings make it difficult, make it difficult. for them yeah. to sell as a primary residence. I'm not sure that lending institutions would, yeah. um, you know, inspections come into play. Yeah. That's why, I mean, I think there's a whole industry of this natural occurring low-income housing because um, you might not be able to get financing to buy a building like that. Maybe you're just going to have to buy cash and then just continue it as it is. Um, We see all kinds, and it's not just outside investors. There is a particular investor on the Lower South Hill who buys um, homes that have 8 to 10, 12 units, and then the first thing he does is raises the rent higher than what the payment standard is for housing choice vouchers. So the housing choice tenants have no choice but to move out or pay the difference between the rent and what their voucher pays. And so that's what, what happens a lot on the lower South Hill. And our fair market rent has gone up. Um, I think just this year, I just got the 2021 and I think for one bedrooms, it went up almost $200. That's That's quite a jump. That's a huge jump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for, for folks that are salaries, especially during a pandemic, but even in general, like wages aren't keeping pace with that sort of a jump. So even if you are sort of marginally or if you have a voucher, you might not be able to afford 50 or 100 extra bucks a month on top of that voucher to maintain your housing. Oh, I would say most likely you would not be able to afford it. Yeah. Tenants are always optimistic and they, they'll try it one month and then they realize, oh, they couldn't buy food or yeah. they couldn't take care of medical expenses and they realized that's not sustainable. Hmm. So I think we're going to probably do this as a two-parter, uh, and we want to just kind of start with outlining the, the various different problems. Obviously, people not having homes is a primary, like, large umbrella problem, but you've said that there's a real racial equity component to this. I'm paraphrasing here. Housing is probably more impacted by systemic racism and historic oppression and creates more disparity of opportunity than any other factor for Spokane BIPOC communities. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, I mean, I, God, boy, that's a five, five shows for that question. Uh, um, I think that the obvious is the one that we've heard a lot about, and that is the white-only housing covenants that yeah. were placed on much of the housing in the South Hill and different areas of Spokane. Um, again, redlining is another uh, yeah. uh, tool that was used to keep people out of certain neighborhoods and only in other neighborhoods, and, um, and so that has has carried on. Uh, the racial divide in home ownership in Spokane is wider than the state and the nation. Wow. And I think that that also, you know, when people ask why, well, you can also look at the um, denials of mortgage applications. Yeah. Um, that is, that's the, the disparity there go along racial lines. Yeah. Income disparity 
opportunity. I mean, it's almost like a cyclical. If you're living in housing that doesn't, you don't have opportunity for jobs that pay well, Mm -hmm. how are you going to move out of that? Um, And I think that the Fair Housing Act of 1968 has never fully been implemented anywhere in the country, (laughs) much less Spokane. And then we have setbacks like we have in the last four years under Trump and Ben Carson, who really moved back Mm. affirmatively advancing fair housing. And, um, And so you put all of those together and we have a higher disparity of people of color who are renters than probably any other city around. Wow. So, yeah. There was also the whites only covenants and the redlining, which were a form of obviously exclusion, were Mm -hmm. basically a way of just saying, you can't buy a house if you're a person of color in this neighborhood because of the the housing covenants that were created up around Comstock Park nationwide. Then maybe even if you could, it was hard to get lending. And this right. is, you know, you get get financing the way that, you know, people normally get, get mortgages. But then in the, what was it, the 90s or the 2000s, predatory inclusion became a issue, right? Where, where you could get subprime mortgages mm-hmm. if you were, you know, right. pe- folks like this. And then when the housing crisis happened, that was the largest drop. I know specifically the largest drop in black wealth in American history because people, these homes that they had awful predatory mortgages on or that they maybe couldn't quite afford or whatever, that was the only wealth that a lot of these communities were able to build. And so when they lost their homes, they lost all their wealth as well. Yeah, and then and I think you can still see remnants of that in Spokane. I mean, we still have vacant housing yeah. left over from the housing crisis of 2010. We are always slower to recover, which is what I'm very worried about, about COVID, yeah. that our recovery is going to be slower than the rest. We did not provide adequate rental assistance mm-hmm. in the city. Um, I think only the city of Spokane and the city of Spokane Valley offered rental assistance. The county did not use any of its $92 million of CARES Act money for rental assistance. And as these protections from the moratorium go away, I mean, the moratorium has really been the floor. I mean, we have had, that is the only thing that has kept people from literally being massively evicted from their homes in Spokane. And I don't know that people realize how dangerously close we are to seeing something worse than what we saw in 2010 in terms of displacement. Right. Like if you, if you think we have a, house, a homelessness problem now, wait until the mm-hmm. rent moratorium mm-hmm. or the, the eviction moratorium goes away. Exactly. So Avista put out that map of people who are behind on their utility bills. And then somebody on Twitter just yesterday, I saw it, juxtaposed that against a redlining map from the 30s. And oh. so the places where... Uh, and I'll, I'll post this in oh, the show yes. notes. But I the, was going to look for that myself. <laughs> I'll, I'll find it for you and send it to you. <laughs> it's, you know, the places that were historically redlined. So, you know, we're talking about Hilliard. We're talking about West Central. Mm-hmm. We're talking about East Central. It almost maps perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. And the way the redlining maps work, the redlining maps were really, really e- evilly clever because it was never like the entire neighborhood got blocked out. You know, it wasn't like all of Hilliard is, you know. Correct. They would take... Even so, in my neighborhood, I live a li- I live up on 14th on the South Hill. Like they had the just like the strip along the cliff is like the green zone, which is like that's for the wealthiest people. Everything else in there is kind of a blue zone. It's desirable, but not the most desirable. And then you have these massive swaths of Spokane that were yellow and then red. And mm-hmm. the redlining was like that's where the the term redlining comes from. Was like basically classifying neighborhoods as desirable or not as a way of 
allowing white people who are traditionally wealthier than than uh, people of color on the whole, basically like creating little like enclaves of wealth and then artificially keeping the housing prices down in those other neighborhoods because they would the realtors would be like, no, you don't want to live there. That's that's right. a bad neighborhood. They would never say necessarily. Well, I don't know. I'm sure individual realtors were very very racist, but. It wasn't like, oh, this is a black neighborhood, or but it was just like, oh, this is just a bad neighborhood, so don't buy here, buy up on the South Hill, right? Right. And today we still see now people in those excluded zones are the ones that are currently suffering uh, and having a hard time paying their, their utility bills due to COVID. And, you know, um, Spokane Regional Health District uh, about, I don't know, five, five or so years ago did a longevity study and life expectancy. And if you put that on an overlay over these redlining maps and the white only covenants, you can actually see that it costs people up to 20 years of your life, depending on what neighborhood you live in. And it's all based on exactly that very and, that very thing and when there's a perception that you're a poor neighborhood it's like other businesses are less likely mm-hmm. to site there that's why these places also tend to be food deserts because mm-hmm. it's like why would you want to put a safe way in a neighborhood that people say is like poor or whatever you right. know and so it creates then it's like everything every aspect of your life gets a little bit i know this isn't supposed to be a redlining show but we're talking about yeah. racial disparities here this is important because where people live impacts their their entire life in a really massive way. And as a you know, as a young person you're like, "Oh, I live in Browns Edition now and I get to go to these cool places. Oh, and now I've moved up to the lower South Hill. I get to like when you're not when you're not housing insecure, it can feel kind of like a fun adventure. But if you're so constrained by your income that you you won't have such limited options, then that means you're forced into places where you might have to take a bus to go to the store. Yeah, we don't we don't design our town very well. I mean, we we design trendiness as where you can drive to. A trendiness should be where you live. <laughs> where you can walk to, yeah. Who your neighbors are and how you relate to your your neighbors and how you can develop a community. And for some reason, we just don't think like that in Spokane. Yeah. And it's really disappointing as we're trying to get housing policies that protect tenants and protect renters. Because when we're talking about um, racial disparity, and yes, we're talking about the the creation of it through redlining, through wealth building, through. But then what is the result of it when 80% of black households in Spokane are renters? Well, when you're a renter, it means that you can be served a notice that says in 20 days, you got to move out there and if yeah. you don't go to move out in 20 days you're going to get evicted well that doesn't happen to a homeowner no. you can get a notice that says hey guess what we're going to double your rent in yeah. 60 days you got it and if you can't afford it you better find somewhere else to live regardless of how long your children have been going to the schools in that neighborhood or how long you've been working at your job and now Absolutely. you're going to be losing that accessibility and and so that's all very connected and so now everybody has to start out from ground zero again if you are a renter. I mean, you just have to live with that mentality because we have had to in Spokane. There's no protection, and that's why we have been really (laughs) pursuing just cause eviction protection in Spokane as, you know, to me, that's the gateway for tenant protections. Um, Number one, that 
addresses the imbalance of power between landlords and tenants. I mean, yeah. if you can get a 20-day notice that you have to move for any reason whatsoever, um, you're going to want to either be on your bestest behavior at all times around your landlord or lay as low as possible so they don't even know you're there. Yeah, I mean, right. it, it just completely dictates how your relationship is with your landlord. And then at that point, it, it that's going to determine whether or not you're going to have decent housing or dilapidated housing yeah. and we don't have a housing maintenance code in Spokane so that you can't even really call the city and say hey my landlord's in violation of this code yeah. because we don't have a code right. now you don't really have code maintenance or main, you know a code yeah. maintenance office that can really hold anybody accountable right. because we don't have a housing maintenance code I mean it so it, it all starts kind of from those basic rights that tenants need to have so that they can at least call attention to what's happening. Um, policies get changed because people voice their concerns. Yeah. But if your housing conditions are so that you are forced to stay quiet all the time, yeah. how are you ever going to tell? You're trying to fly under the radar. Yeah, yeah right. So that that's the that's the challenge that we deal with at the tenants union. Yeah. Uh, we know that tenants call us on a daily basis, but we often are their voices because when it comes to would you come to a meeting and speak out and tell about this? Mm -hmm. Well, who wants to tell the worst day of your life yeah. story over and over again? And, and so it's been a real challenge. Whereas landlords, on the other hand, many don't have a 40-hour work week. Yeah. So they have a lot of time on their hands. And they can call their city council member or their legislator or write a letter or join an organization. Well, and, and even if even if they do work, they it's it's their job to be a landlord. So therefore, they, they're going to take time out of their job to like go to the, you know, right, testify in front of, of the city work. council because they're, it's in their material interest exactly. to do so. Yeah. It's also obviously in the material interest of the tenants to like fight to be able to keep their housing, you know, and if you're just sort of on the outside of these sort of civic things, it can be intimidating to go to the, try to like speak in front of city hall for the first time. So that's kind of what you guys are there mm -hmm. to do is to correct the power imbalance between landlords and, and tenants a little bit, right? And try to get the, the city... Yeah, we well, our we try to you know leadership development so yeah. we can encourage tenants to learn their rights and learn their laws and be comfortable speaking out, um, which is a horrible barrier for some people. Yeah, you know, and then we're demonized constantly. <laughs> I mean, you know, just just our name, you know, landlords will just say tenants union. They're just a bunch of communists and they're here to ruin the city. And <laughs> right. we're like, and they're from Seattle. You know, I yeah. hear that one all the time. You're yeah from Seattle. Well, no, we, we're in Spokane. All of us that work for the Tenants Union in Spokane Are lived in Spokane, Spokane yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in fact, our tenant counselor is a descendant of the Spokane Tribe. She's an enrolled member of the Caldwell Confederated Tribes, but she's oh, a Spokane wow. descendant. Yeah. So you can't get more Spokane than that. Than the indigenous so, people who yeah, exactly. we kicked off their land. Yeah, exactly. yeah right. So, um, you know, to be <laughs> accused of being outsiders is kind of insulting. Yeah. We have built a culture in this country and and most of the world to be like well voting rights were excluded from everybody except land holding white men at the beginning of our country right exactly. so this is not new and in a lot of ways it's just the sort of default position we take because of the way you know again back to our founding documents it, this was all about empowering you know white men who held land 
And so we're fighting against, you know, a couple hundred years of history in addition to, you know, whatever, whatever uh, charges of like carpet bagging you guys get at the, at the tenants union. So one of the, so you mentioned you started in 2013 and I want to kind of keep outlining the problems before we start getting okay. to the solutions, just because I really want to underscore what this mm-hmm. means for people. So I started noticing like four years after that, like 2016, 2017, friends that I went to college with who moved away and came back are just are buying mansions in Perry with their Seattle salaries or their Seattle, the, the contract work that they do as artists or whatever, as, as commercial creatives. And immediately I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of scary. And then there was just, um, I haven't reported on this exactly, but there's a, um, a document from the Department of Licensing saying that there have been a thousand people from out of state moving to Spokane County for the last 25 months consecutive. So every every month for the last two years, a thousand people from out of state have been moving to Spokane County. So what has that been doing? So there's the sort of baseline inequity and we had a, so we had a 1% vacancy rate before this and now it's getting even worse. So can you talk about that specific and acute pressure? Well, you know, I, I actually, my family lives over on the west side, even though I have lived in Spokane for over 30 years, so I'm a definite Spokaneite. But I did spend <laughs> Thanksgiving to Christmas over um, yeah. on the west side of the state um, to help with my um, elderly parents. And um, I watched the news, and I watched the Seattle um, t- television market, and every day I saw those ads with images of Spokane in the beautiful winter <laughs> saying, come to Spokane, come move. And I kept thinking, where where are they going to move to? Yeah. And um, are you not, should there not be some like, you know how they have advertisements for drugs and at the end they tell you, may cause drowsiness, may cause death. <laughs> you know, shouldn't they say, you know, be be very concerned there are not enough houses in Spokane as there's vacancy rate 1%. Secretary, yeah, Secretary, Secretary of State's warning, uh, you may cause rampant displacement if you move to Spokane. I, I mean, there, there, there needs to be some disclaimer because I'm thinking, I'm sure that the purpose of when people watch those ads is I would like to get away from what I'm living with in Seattle, yeah. but aren't we now creating the same thing? Yeah. Okay, in the 80s in Seattle? Okay, I've moved this up a decade. Yeah, yeah. But aren't we now starting to look like Seattle in the 80s? And if we don't do something about it, we're just going to be Seattle yeah. and nobody, I mean, you just said they're moving away. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we do have an office there and th- yeah, I can tell you that's a huge concern, hmm. um, that, that renters, um, aren't even, can't even afford to live in Seattle. So what's that going to, what's that say about Spokane yeah. and in Seattle, you have, you know, 5 million people in the surrounding Puget Sound area. There's places to go and, right. you know, we don't have any wide open spaces. If you can't live in our city or in our yeah. county, I'm not sure where you could find to live. And it, and it's, yes, it very much concerns me. And it also concerns me that, you know, I, what kind of employers want to come to Spokane if they can't guarantee that their workers are going to be living Workforce in? Workforce housing. Yeah, yeah, we don't have enough housing for workers. And if we really want to attract good, you know, top tier employers to Spokane, shouldn't we have some housing security and housing yeah. stability at yeah. all levels of the workforce? Yeah. And we don't seem to focus on that. And and like I've said before, you know, I think in all the years I've 
lived here, we've lived on this verge of, are we just a small town with a large population or are we a city? And if we're a city, are we going to start behaving like a city? Because we really haven't adopted many, many policies that cities have adopted that address some of these things. And um, yeah, I'm very worried about what's going to happen. And even, even small, like medium density housing stock seems like an anomaly or like, oh, isn't that cute? Wow, look, they just built a four unit apartment building over by Gonzaga that's like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, carbon neutral. That's like, it's it's almost like a uh, spectacle rather than like a standard piece of housing stock, which is what you should have in a city that's like, you know, constraint. We've got an urban growth boundary, you know, that's partially to stop sprawl, to stop pollution, to stop massive commute times, to stop the incredibly expensive infrastructure that needs to be, you know, plumbing and electricity that needs to be run out to, you know, north of nine mile, if that's where we're going to expand to. So that's a good thing, but it means we need to start building more dense housing and we just aren't doing it. Mm -hmm. So kind of turning towards solutions, but this is an imperfect one for you. Like we just passed a housing levy, which Ben Stuckert came on and Mm -hmm. talked about. And, And the tenants unit is in favor of the housing levy, but it's not enough in your guys' mind. So can you talk about the good points of the housing levy, but then where it falls short, and then we'll we'll sort of swing into uh, some of the other solutions the tenant union is uh, is suggesting. Well, I think that my some of my concerns um, with the housing levy are that it didn't really include impacted um, communities or BIPOC communities in the designing okay. of it. And uh, a lot of developers, a lot of housing providers, a lot of people on the providing side, but really nobody on the consumer side. Um, And particularly BIPOC communities, which are more hard hit by the housing affordability crisis than any other community. And I think that it it kind of became an afterthought that uh, it was in the verbiage. For example, there was a housing forum, but there were no people of color on the housing forum to talk about needs of the community or how the levy would address some of those needs. Um, And I think that, you know, when I've always talked about the disparity in housing of um, BIPOC in rental and um, racial divide in home ownership, and it seemed like this levy was going to create some home ownership opportunities, Mm. but not nearly enough to make up the difference of that divide. And um, and it's questionable whether or not that was that that there was enough design in the project that that could actually be an outcome that would occur. And instead of saying, well, gee, we'll create more home ownership opportunities for some folks, why can't we look at how we can make life a little bit better for the 80% who are renters? Yeah. We, we seem to overlook the vast majority BIPOC. I believe it's it's 80% of black, black uh, households are, are renters wow. and 60% of all other um, indigenous okay. and people of color communities wow. uh, I think it's 62%. And then you look at displacement, the displacement rates in Spokane, and like 62% of all housing displacement occurs to renters. And so Mm. you, you know, so when you look at those kind of numbers and you see uh, those kind of statistics, why aren't we making it better for renters instead of giving a few home ownership opportunities? Yeah. That that doesn't seem to offset the balance. So if a, if a super majority of uh, people of color are renters, 
and a super majority of people getting kicked out of their homes are renters, it stands to reason that a very, very high percentage of these people getting displaced are, are going to be people of color. In, Correct. In our, in our community. And we, and I mean, I can, get, I can get even more, you know, the fact that we have so few legal resources for tenants in Spokane mean that many tenants go through an eviction procedure and never get a limited, an order of limited dissemination, which huh. prevents future landlords from seeing an eviction oh. on your record, which is a state law. In most other jurisdictions across the state where there are more resources, that's kind of an automatic. Yeah. But in Spokane, it's the other way around. It's pretty much automatic. You do not get those things removed from your records, even if it wasn't your fault, even if it was a no-cause 20-day notice. You can get a 20-day notice, no cause. You did nothing yeah. wrong. You're current in rent. You've never right. violated a single provision in your rental agreement. But because a landlord wants to either upgrade the apartment or maybe you've made a complaint to code enforcement one too many times yeah. or maybe you've talked to the neighbors and got them all riled up about something in the common area. Fixing something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so they will they can just give you a 20-day notice and get you out of there. You can't get out in 20 days. Let's just say you can't get out because you can't find anything. We have a vacancy rate of about zero. Or maybe you don't have a car. Yeah. Or, you know, I could right. go on and on oh, and on yeah. of what could be a barrier for you not getting something in 20 days. 21 day, you get served with an eviction notice. That's on your record. Wow. And um, to get that off of your record, normally, if you have a lot of, you know, resources, and where I know that there are some legislation that will um, give uh, a right to counsel for tenants going through eviction, yeah. which hopefully could help some of that. But right now we don't. So tenants could be have a comp- perfect rental record, never missed a payment, but yet they'll get an eviction on their record that they can't take off, and now they can't find another place to live. Or they don't even know it's a rule that you're allowed to take those things exactly. off. Exactly. So, or they don't even know that they were served an eviction notice. Yeah. They moved out, yeah. and then the, they went. the landlord went ahead and served a summons, uh-huh. and now the summons is on your record, and you don't even know it's there. And so when that's on your record, all that really shows to or what that all that really describes to a potential landlord who might you know uh, be renting to you later down the road is this person's either poor or a troublemaker. Yeah, basically, mm-hmm. that's all it really says. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so it's an undesirable mark on your record. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. It, so then it makes it f- even more difficult to to find housing. And, and then when to that. then knowing that all of those things I just described can only happen to a renter. And 80% of black households are renters. (laughs) I mean, that's where the racial disparity is. That is what systemic racism is. It's a system built in so that those people, uh, BIPOC communities, are going to fall through that gaping hole of a gap um, where none exists if you're a white homeowner. I probably need to go back and like insert a little chunk about exactly what the housing levy that passed says, but. Was there anything specific in the language that you know of around home ownership for poor people in Spokane? Because like, I guess like if there's a housing levy designed to just increase housing stock overall, like incentivizing people to build, what's going to stop those thousand plus people a month from moving in that are just going to take up all the new houses? It, it just strikes me that when we have a massive influx of people, nothing, nothing you're doing at the market level is going to trickle down to the people that need it the most 
if there's more people moving to town than there is housing stock, it, the problem's only going to get worse, not mm-hmm. better. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, and and even when I heard um, the city council president describe it, he was talking about, you know, even as recently as 10, 15 years ago, uh, a couple each working in retail could buy a home. Well, now you can't buy a home because, you know, we've been priced out of it. So if we're only helping that two income household, how are we (laughs) helping the renters that are a one? household, um, you know, parent with, you know, four children or something, you know what I'm saying? It's just, even with the levy as good as it gets, doesn't really reach down into what wasn't already impacted, even by the council president's description of a two household family two years ago. And this is a little, this is a little bit of a digression, but it strikes me like even the way we talk about that, you know, even framing it as like, look at these people who are in retail, but they're working really hard and they're, it's the way we even talk about it kind of prejudices prejudices the idea of poverty or just, you know, being, you know, hard up. It's like, oh, well, look at the people that are doing everything right. They can't buy a home. Yeah. And it's like, well, what about people that are only have one income because their partner's on disability? Exactly. Or, what if, um, yeah, you're a disabled vet. I mean, yeah. you or know. you Or you have a couple kids, which is normal. Everybody oh. has kids. And because you're working in retail, it would be more expensive to get childcare than it would be to whatever money you're going to make at Macy's. Mm-hmm. So you decide to stay home, and all of a sudden now you're a single-income household again because you've made, you know, there's so much um, just casual prejudice against poor people, like they're dumb or they're not good with money. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you're actually, in that case, you would be making a, a, a smart financial decision for one of you to stay home and save on those uh, daycare costs. It drives me crazy how little time we spend humanizing and thinking about people like this. I, I, I totally agree. And I also think that we ignore the fact that people who are living with in low, with low wages still contribute to our economy. Ab- I mean, we are, we are still, <laughs> you know, going to the neighborhood grocery store, Absolutely. still paying for the, the, the essentials that help the guy down the street have his job, yes. right? Yes. And so, it, you know, we are all a part of this economy. I do think, though, the part of the housing levy that will be helpful for a lot of those families is the shared equity housing that would be made available. Oh, cool. So there would be some permanent affordable housing, which would either be done through community land trust um, so that the homeowner buys the home, but the land remains um, in trust. Oh, and so you get to build equity and using that equity, then you can, you know, you can sell the home. So it's, it's, it does add a level cool. that makes it uh, makes it better for some folks to get into becoming a homeowner to begin with. So, cool. and I do, I, I really do like the shared equity housing. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I mean, I, the potential's there. I mean, I am in support of it because I'm in support of any publicly <laughs> All, funded housing. Yes, I mean, yes. we have overlooked the need for publicly funded housing. And some of the solutions are so obvious, you know, yeah. like, why don't we treat housing vouchers like we treat food stamps, yeah. right? If you're eligible, you get them. Yeah. But yeah. it isn't that way. You're eligible for a housing voucher, but what, in Spokane, only 12% of the people that are actually eligible get them? Wow. We are, the the oh, national wow. average is minute. 20%. That's 12% of people who are eligible for vouchers? Yes. Don't. I thought it was 12% of the entire market. Wow, so that's even fewer. Yes, for of our very low income renters, eighty 
percent of them are living in market rate housing, but could live in subsidized housing, but it's discretionary spending. It's not an entitlement. So housing is not considered an entitlement where food stamps are an entitlement. Which just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Because even when you look at some of the cash benefits that people get through public entitlements, if you're paying it all on rent, what we're not really sustaining our own community that way. Yeah. So what are these anti-displacement and gentrification policies that, and they were separate from just cause eviction. Right. So like what else, what, 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 what do those policies look like and what would it take to enact them here? Well, probably one of the best anti-displacement policies is rent control, but that's uh. like considered a dirty word, <laughs> even though really we have rent control all around us. I mean, anybody that lives in tax credit building, or if you live in a HUD Section 8 building, or if you're using a voucher, yeah. um, that that's some level of rent control. Right. Um, you can have rent control if you live in a building and you can you know collectively bargain with your landlord. Yeah. Um, that can be a form of rent control. But that rent control is probably the best. I think one of the proposals that the city council member Burke came up with, which is my favorite policy, (laughs) is rental relocation for economic displacement. Um, We have a state law in Washington that forbids any city or county or local jurisdiction from enacting rent control Hmm. of any kind. Um, And what Portland did in Oregon to get around it, uh, because they had the same thing until Oregon finally did pass rent control, Um, but prior to that, Portland had a economic displacement. So if your rent goes up beyond your ability to pay and you become rent burdened or severely rent burdened as a result of a rent increase of 5% or higher, hmm. then your landlord would have to pay $3,000. Just to, to help you relocate. To relocate you. This is why this is such an interesting and, and nuanced topic. The landlord, it is it is a business and it is an investment. And in businesses, you have expenses that you just don't get a choice, right? So when exactly. often when ideas like this come up in the discourse, and there's not the discourse in Spokane is weird, but it's like, oh, why would a landlord just give somebody money to move if you can't pay the rent and then just move? It's like, well, you can make a moral argument, and I would, that it's like yeah. it's evil to just kick people out of their homes. Yeah, and if you're and if you're the kind of investor, right? If you're the kind of business person that's trying to to make profit off of people's just having a roof over their heads, it's an incredibly profitable way to make money because everybody needs a roof over their head. I can't think of another industry that has a demand rate of like 99%, right? You know, you go to the go to McDonald's at the end of the day and they throw out half their cheeseburgers because there's not enough demand, you know, there's not enough yeah. demand for how many, many cheeseburgers they made. The demand for housing is literally 99 point some percent, yeah, right? Exactly. So you that is an incredibly safe investment. If you're a landlord, you're going to be making money for the rest of your life and probably for the rest of your kids' lives because of the way inheritance works. Like you could be setting your family up for generations of wealth creation Mm -hmm. and you can't afford, you know, thinking on the scale of decades, you can't afford three grand to help the tenant you just kicked out of their house find a different place to live. Yeah. Yeah. You absolutely can. I'm sorry. Oh, oh I know. I, I was in a building once um, where every tenant in the building was served a 20-day notice. And by the time we got called, it was the very last tenant that called us. And so I went to their ah. house, and they were living alone um, over near the courthouse on Broadway. And uh, they were the only unit that was left. Now, everybody else had to leave in tw- in uh, 20 days, you wow. know. And so, of course, you can't take all your belongings with you if 
you're going to go yeah. live with your mom or live with the, your sister. And, and in fact, I did get a hold of some of the tenants that moved, and that's exactly what happened. They had to separate their family. A daughter went to, with one relative and until you could get settled. And, and, and of course, like people left their belongings. And so the owner of the building, as he removed everybody, hired from the city dumpsters. Jeez. He spent more money on the dumpsters then he spent to to help these tenants move out of their house. And just saying that sounds disgusting, but that's exactly how it works. Now, if they can afford to put dumpsters to put all their stuff in it, why couldn't they have given them adequate time to move, (laughs) a little bit of help in their relocation? Then they wouldn't have had to even probably hire the dumpsters to put all of their stuff. And I saw the stuff that was going in dumpsters. It was photographs. It was memories. It was toys. It was belongings that people had to literally abandon behind them. But the owner of the building couldn't pay for that cost, but paid for the cost of dumpsters. And then complained about it, you know, as, as if to say, see these tenants, they just leave this mess behind. Well, what are they expected to do when you give them 20 days notice? You know, it's it's those kinds of things that are heartbreaking, but they're also so frustrating and they just make me so angry because they should do it, but they don't. And then when you ask for policies that require it, you get complete pushback yeah. and being demonized and it's very frustrating. So it's like, yeah, if you, again, you are not going to be able to find a new home to rent on 20 days notice. There's basically zero chance. Again, like you said, if you're moving in with your family, you're not going to be able to keep your stuff. If you're on rent vouchers or even if you're just like a low, low income person, if you can't afford a rent increase, you're not going to be able to afford a storage unit mm-hmm. to store your stuff. When we think about building wealth, you know, it's like you're accumulating, you're buying a house here, you wait five years, you buy another house. That's like the way a lot of middle class people like will build wealth for themselves. When you're talking about people who had to throw away their, so they're throwing away their memories, which are not replaceable. Maybe they're throwing away half their clothes Mm because they don't have a big closet. So it's like now the basic like fundamental aspects of like being able to function in society and life, people are just having to throw out as they sort of flee their former home. It's barbaric. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And it looked like a war zone. It really, it literally did. The fact that that one family hung on, and that was, and it was before the, um, and I'll just tell you what happened during the pandemic. Then the moratorium came about, so they couldn't get evicted. And so they called me up because the landlord said, well, I'll offer you $2,000 because the landlord really wanted that unit so they could fix it up. And I said, tell him you want 3000 And the landlord gave him 3000 I should have told him to ask for 5000 I mean, when it comes down to it, they will get it because the landlord, it was worth it. But because there's no requirement to pay for relocation costs. Yeah. And it was only because in that certain instance, um, you know, it was yeah. more worth it for the landlord to clear the place out. And I, just, I kind of halfway jokingly said, ask for 3000 yeah. And they got it. Of course. Because... And on a long enough scale, it absolutely it's a drop in the bucket for the mm-hmm. profitability of that property for the landlord. Exactly. All right, let's call it there for this week. Not a lot of hope in this episode, but there's more 
solutions uh, and some pretty audacious, pretty awesome solutions that I think we could absolutely do in Spokane relatively simply. All it takes is political will, political pressure, just the desire from our society to treat people better and a little bit of not even out of the box thinking, more like Northern and Western European thinking, stuff that's pretty common in the rest of the world. But for whatever reason, everything from you know the capitalist death drive on one hand to the absolute fear of anything resembling you know socialism, communism, whatever, has made these things all but unheard of or verboten for the last 50 years in America. But they're very, very common, very, very successful in lots of other places in the world. So that'll be next week. I do think despite the darkness, we got a really good look at the landscape and the problems. This week, Terry, as Paul promised, gave an incredible and very humane, human-centered look at the problem. You know what? I'm a firm believer that looking at people as people and not problems to solve is actually a solution of a sort. It doesn't go far enough, but it gets you in the mindset to actually start solving humanity's problems through a lens that humanizes people in general and doesn't just further exclude and exploit them. So this is really, really powerful. I'm getting kind of chills in the back of my neck listening through it. So I really hope you enjoyed it too. A little bit of housekeeping before we go. I recorded this as always recently, well, almost always recently at Speak Studios in downtown Spokane, Washington. If you want to start a podcast, they are here to help. Go check them out. Speakstudios.com. I'll also say that I got editing help with the interview and probably for the foreseeable future until he gets burned out from my man, Connor Bacon, uh, one of my favorite people in the whole world. I put out the call saying I need help. And he responded, I got you. That's kind of exactly how he talks. That might have even been a direct quote. So Connor, thank you so much, man. Connor will not be doing that editing work pro bono, largely thanks to viewers like you, listeners, readers like you. I slide in here every week talking about how we want to turn this into a sustainable enterprise and we need your financial help. Well, funny thing, we now have enough members that I can start thinking about things like paying people like Connor for their services. And I'm so thankful to you for that. We do, though, still have a long way to go. So if you like what we're doing, if this has become a meaningful part of your news diet, as people in the biz say, I really hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member of Range. We do not paywall any of our content and never will because we don't believe people's access to news should be restricted by how much they can pay for news if they don't have very much money to go around. Say, for example, they live in constant fear of being kicked out of their house for arbitrary reasons or just because the landlord wants to redevelop. Still want them to be able to listen to range. And because of that, we rely on the generosity of people who can afford it to do so. So if you like what we're doing, consider helping us out. It's 10 bucks a month, $100 a year. Go to rangemedia.co to become a sustaining member so that we can continue growing the operation, professionalizing the operation, and honestly building power. Building power among people of conscience who want to see Spokane and the Inland Northwest become a better, more humane, more just place. I will say it's an ambitious goal, <laughs> and it certainly won't be easy, but it would be impossible without people like you helping us do this work. So yeah, become a member if you can. And if you already are, thank you so, so much. We'll be back next week with more Terry Anderson. Until then, y'all, bye.